the theme for the afternoon talk is the emptiness of choice. Sometimes we look at the trends, the developments, the attitudes, the views and opinions that inform the time that we live in. And in the world of language, in the world of uh, human agreements and disagreements, one of the central concepts in what we speak, what we share, what we listen to, is the language of choice. It's become embedded in our psyche. It's used and spoken with a certain almost absolute certainty. It seems as a construct, as a concept, to be rather self-evident. We are told this by our peers, we are told this by our leaders, and we have persuaded ourselves and sometimes we are persuasive of others. We are saying, you have a choice. This is your choice. You make these choices. We look at ourselves and we come up with much the same kind of language as well. This is my choice. I have to make a choice. I have to make a decision. And immediate response to such a uh, form of language is that it feels and it, and it seems very rational and it seems very reasonable. And I think as a general principle with us, if it feels reasonable and rational, be careful. <laughs> it's the first warning sign. The second warning sign is, if everybody seems to agree, then disagree. <laughs> Question. Because we create a kind of climate and culture around the few concepts and words in which our inner life and our social life tends to depend upon. And as I said earlier, one of them is this whole world, whole language, this construction of the word around the word choice. Choice, choice, choice. And if we start to look at it, it's not to promote an opposite kind of view. It's not to say there is absolutely no choice. It is not to say we are just determined creatures. It is not to say that just forces of nature move us along, which we disguise as choice. Nor that our genetic conditioning are making all the choices for us, but we don't want to admit it. In, so, Dharma teachings is not to promote an opposite view. It's about the relinquishment, that means the letting go, or the non-clinging to the view. So, in then looking into the emptiness of choice, not to say, therefore, choicelessness is the right view. Not to say determinism is the right view. It's just looking at 
the limitations of the view which many of us frequently use about ourselves and others called choice, called decision making, called being responsible, called I should do or I must do or I can't make up my mind and we live psychologically, emotionally far too much time in this little world and it's a very small, rather pathetically small little world and choice creeps creeping in so let me just explore it a little bit with you hopefully sow sow a few seeds of doubt which you will have no choice about (laughs) and we'll just see where, where, where it goes so just just taking a little bit consumer culture is impossible to support without that whole language of choice we say I need to buy this whatever this is I want to buy a pair of shoes I uh, want to buy a new shirt or a dress or a handbag or a computer or whatever it might be and the normal convention is well, I could choose this one, or I could choose that, or something else. And so we are besieged with a whole variety of choiceless, endless choices. And if you go, if we go into the supermarket, into the shopping mall or whatever, and you want to buy, say, a pair, a pair of shoes, the range and variety is breathtaking, and they grow every year. And... We often have an image in the mind, a picture of what we want. And sometimes how hard it is to find what's out there, which is the same as what's inside. <laughs> and as a very dear friend of mine just said to me a few days ago in, in uh, Israel, she said to me, the man I want to meet who is inside <laughs> who is clear, compassionate, has vision, loving, intimate, etc. This man I'm looking for, and I'm now, she said, 38 years of age. I I know this man because I have this man inside of me 24-7, but I can't (laughs) find him out there, (laughs) etc. There's a few people wandering around looking for the ghost. (laughs) So sometimes it's like that with the pair of shoes. And we find ourselves going, uh, I have a a strong memory of this, um, 20 years ago when I was in a relationship with somebody who we went to Oxford Street in London. And I don't know if if you've you've ever been unfortunate enough to go to Oxford Street. (laughs) But it's basically kilometres of shops. Kilometres of them, selling everything. And in that, there were probably 20 or 30 shoe shops. And we went the entire length of Oxford Street, <laughs> crossed over, and the entire length, and the exact pair of shoes which was in the good lady's mind, she could not find out there. You know, either the strap was too wide, or the high heel was too low, it was too high, or didn't quite fit, or, or whatever. And by the time we'd spent the entire afternoon, this is called choice, it's a nightmare. (laughs) By the time we'd spent the entire afternoon looking for this pair of shoes, which she had seen momentarily on somebody else's feet, (laughs) 
<laughs> and said, this is the pair that I want. <laughs> I don't know why she didn't just take them off the woman's feet. <laughs> but by the time we'd finished this long walk, and I had looked in every single shoe shop in Oxford Street, standing around waiting, that I had worn out my shoes. <laughs> And all of this desperate lifestyle and being driven and, wa- and looking for something in particular is all hidden in the language of choice. So we use choice, it's a kind of sugar coating, sugar coating on desire, on being under pressure, on wanting this, feeling success if I get, feeling failure if I don't get feeling relieved if I secure, feeling disappointed if I don't. And the movement, all of that inner movement, is somehow disguised and it's placed into the language of choice. And choice, me, in a way, becomes or expresses something inside which is unhappy. It, it, it expresses some kind of discontent, go back to the pair of shoes or any other consumable. And in the sense of the discontent which comes, there is some reaction to it. And the reaction comes in the form of a movement or a wave inside of ourself. And the wave is quite deep, you know, it's, it's got a feeling to it for sure. It's got thoughts in it, it's got memory. It's got intentions. And that package, that inner package moves and it sets up a wave. But the wave has a fragmentation in it. It's split. It's not a whole movement. And, and it's not a whole movement because it's got a choice in it. And the I, who is the chooser, arises, the self arises, and the self rises, and in its emergence it says, well, I could choose this or I could choose that. And one is trying to make up, this is, even the language is interesting, one is trying to make up one's mind. What does that mean? I'm trying to make up my mind. Well, in a way, one is. It's a dream, it's a maya, it's a dream world. I'm trying to make up my mind. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I stay or should I go? Should I buy or should I not buy? Should I start or should I not start? Should I finish or not finish? And when there's that movement, those waves of indecision, fragmentation, it's not wholeness, it's not that fullness of samadhi that I spoke to you about yesterday, that when we have that movement and the ripples and waves going on, we can't make up our mind. What happens? We go to somebody else to the same persons who also can't make up their mind. (laughs) So then that person says to us, in in the great mantra, if I were you, (laughs) well you're not. (laughs) And then this person, one starts off with two choices, and then this person comes in with a third choice. (laughs) I wouldn't do that, I would do this instead. I think you're better suited, whatever it, it, it... it might be, or don't do any of that, or, do, or try both, <laughs> whatever. So the world of the choice 
gets fed. And it's fed by others, it's fed by ourselves, and it contributes to a sleepless night, or a sleepless lifetime. And somehow, in all of this, we're putting it into choice. And it seems a little bizarre to do that. We use it. Some, some of you may be working in the legal system. It's also used a great deal that every act which we engage in, everything which we do, the culture says, well, that was your choice. And that kind of view and pressure doesn't take cognition, recognize, acknowledge. The kind of habits, tendencies, addictions, obsessions, neediness, unhappiness, unresolved problems, emotional, psychological, and all of those forces which are moving inside the human being, in which the outcome of which we say, well, you choose to hurt that person, you chose to rob this person, you chose to uh, be corrupt, in your position of office, or, or whatever uh, it might be, as if, as if all of us, all of the time, are making moment-to-moment -moment choices, and everything that we so-called choose to do is because we've got the act of the free will to be able to do this or that. No evidence for it. There's no evidence the free will and freely choosing to do what we do. If that was the case, if a human being really had free will, free choice to do everything, we'd all be unbelievably happy. <laughs> we would be going out of our minds with happiness. Because nobody's going to choose to be miserable. Nobody's going to choose to wake up in the morning full of fears and anxieties. Nobody's going to choose to live a mad, neurotic, busy, frantic lifestyle. And if, and if one says, oh, oh, you're right. I am living, running around from one thing to another. And that was a really bad choice to make. So if there's really free will, and really had the freedom of choice, we'll say, okay, oh good, that's clear. Just spent the week on dinner retreat, I won't do that anymore. Because I've got free choice. <laughs> and freedom of choice says, oh, I'm going to drop that. Because it, it didn't work. I'll, I'll wake up each day now, and I'm going to choose to be um, a really happy, blissed out, <laughs> um, enlightened, liberated, compassionate, kind, choice, empathetic, appreciative, wonderful human being. <laughs> and I'm going to choose that, and I'm going to choose that everybody knows it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be unbelievably popular. <laughs> and out of that, the man of my dreams will certainly appear. <laughs> or the woman of my dreams will certainly come in. So, when just looking at the world of the choice, when we actually just question it a little bit, it is not, as I mentioned, therefore going to impose another view. 
I'm not sure if that's wise or healthy or beneficial. But rather, just to look at that construct and to look at what is happening when I can't make up a decision. And is my consumerism, as one of the major areas of choice, actually not much choice in it at all? But really, we had just been programmed and conditioned to buy, to have and to own. And the superficiality is a little difference in the detail. I prefer a white, or is it white, or creamy coloured shirt to a multicoloured, hippie, um, rainbow coloured shirt. Whatever. The actual difference it's just a little differences in the, in the uh, superficiality. But the probing and the looking deeper in ourselves is, am I, as a human being, being pushed and pulled along in terms of wanting and not wanting? And I don't want to admit it to myself, so I use choice. And once I start to question all of that, you know, I just... I'm sure you have the same in Germany as in, in England. One can go and buy a consumer good and actually start paying for it a year from now. And so one is in debt, one's got the imagination that somehow or other I'll be better off in May of 2009. There, and therefore one's using well, I'm choosing to postpone the day of reckoning, as we uh, uh, would say. Is it a choice? Or is it that my conditioning, plus the power of persuasive advertising, plus the feelings I lack something and I must have, that my conditioning, the view I don't have and I want, and the persuasive powers of advertising and the psychologists that are employed for it is actually making up my mind. And actually, choice is hardly in it. So I think there's a, t uh, a responsibility and exploration for us. And particularly in the moments and times when we are experiencing wavering and indecision and uh, shall I or shan't I, it's going on. And, and rather than imagine that the decision to or not to is the important thing, would it be useful, it's a question, would it be useful to help calm and steady ourselves? Not so much about choice to do or not to do, have or not to have, stay or to go, or whatever. But bring in some awareness, help to calm and steady our whole being, and then perhaps naturally in the harmony of being, in the fullness of concentration, choice actually gets less. A different way of being enters into our engagement with life. A different kind of movement comes out of us. And one doesn't feel one, one is in the crossroads in life. We don't feel that we're in the torment of shall I or shan't I. 
And if there is a harmony of being, mindfulness, concentration, and other factors, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of choices inside. And the opposite sense comes into the being. In other words, if I'm at a crossroad, shall I or shan't I, in all the ways that that happens to us, the language which we use is, oh, freedom of choice. Maybe I'll do this, or maybe I'll do that. From a Dharma level, it's actually lack of freedom that brings choice. It's not freedom of choice. It's that in the absence of the freedom, choice arises. The idea of it, shall I or shan't I, with all the wavering sometimes and indecision, and can't make my mind up, and I don't know what to do, and sometimes for some people it's a terrible, terrible torment there. And so, in a way, when we're not caught in the field of choices in that way, and there's a sense of harmony of the being, less waves going on, we begin to see the emptiness of choice. Many of the things, of course, in life are, are, are glaringly obvious to us that there's not too much choice about, like birth. <laughs> it's a good start, isn't it? I mean, who of us chose to end up like this? Here we, we, we come into this world screaming our head off. It's probably the very first recognition of, oh my God, get me out of here. <laughs> and then there are all these factors shaping our consciousness. Choice? Did we choose our mother? Father? If either or both were around or somebody else? Brothers, sisters, place, location. <laughs> How much choice was that? We're being moved and shaped there. Do we um, choose our aging process? <laughs> and one can cover it up and, and, and buy all these uh, <laughs> dreadful cosmetics, etc. Anti-aging, I mean, <laughs> come on, wake up, spending millions of dollars, pounds and euros on slapping face cream on ourselves and all these chemicals to stop the aging process. Has one any, met anybody who slowed up aging with cream? or with uh, surgery or whatever. When I was a monk, one thing which I noticed, in the monastery we had monks and uh, nuns, must be 100, 150 nuns, yeah, lovely. One of the things which I noticed about uh, the nuns, many of the nuns, they had a lovely complexion. And they'd never, ne they'd never heard of Oriel. <laughs> And these other wallers. Never, never even, their fingers never even touched cream. 
And yet the way of the life and the nutritious diet and the simplicity and the relaxed way of being is a certain kind of, a kind of purity in living in the monastery. And the complexions were just lovely. And I remember once when I was a monk in India, walking along, um, uh, or way out in the middle of nowhere, along um, the river, river Ganga, and came to a village, I was a monk myself, came to a village, and there was an old sadhu, you know, ascetic, wanderer, yogi, who was living in a bamboo hut, just two or three kilometers outside the, the village. And they said that he was, they said, he was 128 years of age. Instantly, they said. So I thought, well, not every day you meet somebody who's 128. So I went to pay him a visit there, and he had this bamboo hut in the middle of the steps, and I, Swamiji, Swamiji, etc. And he uh, he came came out, and he was you know, very very thin, and the skin was very very wrinkled, and very very tight to the body. And I said, oh, I said I was a Buddhist bhikkhu, means a Buddhist monk. And just came to pay uh, respect and visit him and spoke a little bit, he spoke very good English. And I said to him, the villagers said to me that you're 128 years old. And he said, yes, yes. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, I am. And he, uh, he, from the time of the Raj, you know, 1850s or 60s, you know, when, uh, whenever, it, whenever it was. And I looked at him. I believed him. <laughs> he didn't look a day younger. <laughs> I'd never seen anybody in my whole life who looked so old. <laughs> I had no doubt, he was probably 128. <laughs> if he said he was 126, I wouldn't have believed him. <laughs> he looked it. So here we are. <laughs> we're talking about choice, 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 choice and behind all the choice we're getting older and the ageing process is going on no matter what age that you and I might uh, live, uh, live to and similarly with regard to pain and uh, areas of the emotional life and issues that are going on in our life and all the events that happen to us not just at the point of birth obviously but all the events that impact upon your life and my life every day do we say oh yes I chose that I chose you to come and rob my house I chose you to leave me I chose you to abuse me I chose you to uh, do this and that how easily well, we take on this view you know, it's a bit of a new age view currently that uh, I brought this upon myself, I chose this, etc. And one has these dreadful books. What's it called? The, the Secret. should be called The Nightmare. <laughs> and these views, oh, you get what you want, you attract uh, this, this is what your choice is. And so there's now a spiritual rationalisation for it. And one just wonders in the views, all, all of this in this world of choice and... Whether it's that in the view that is held to, in the construction that is going on, 
it actually has very little to do, to do with the way things are and the way things have become. It doesn't have much connection with life. It doesn't have much connection with birth, ageing, pain and death. It doesn't have much connection with the impact of circumstances upon us. It doesn't have much connection with all those factors which influence our speech, our mind, our body, our behaviour. It doesn't have much connection with all those events that come to us. And when we start looking outside, as it were, of the field of choice as an ideology, as a core belief in secular, secularism, when we start looking outside of that, oh, there's a different sense about life, different kind of expressions uh, of it. And perhaps if we, we have a little bit more humility, if the self and the ego of the chooser is questioned a little bit more carefully, maybe something else can move our life instead of living in the belief system of choice, 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 choice. And as I say, to repeat now, not to generate another view, but just to look at a current one which is very, very common and which is strongly encouraged by the judiciary, it's strongly encouraged by government, it's your choice, and it's strongly encouraged by the corporate world, and it's strongly encouraged by psychologists. But it's not encouraged here. We want to look more deeply into factors which move us. And it's terribly easy, in the language of choice, to use blame. You chose that. That was your choice. And then, following on from the view, blame will come. I chose this. I shouldn't have done it. It was a terrible mistake. Following on from the view, blame will come. And it stops us. It inhibits us from looking at the conditions which bring events about. And we ignore the variety of conditions, dependent arising conditions, and we neglect or reject, and we say it's a choice. And it becomes the blind spot to seeing more carefully. Therefore, the emptiness of the choice. Sometimes, when we look and explore a little bit in, the, in these areas, in this world, the constructs of the self, even little things which we take for granted, which seem common sense, may not really be authentic. Yeah. And sometimes it's with the roles that we have or that we don't have. And it's terribly easy in the world that we live in to regard our view of life as actually only having two significant factors about it. This could be the view. One is what I don't have, and the other is what I want. And our day, the activities of our inner and outer life, can be operating just on these two issues, what I don't have and what I want. And that can reflect and show itself in a whole obvious range, too numerous to mention, uh, of where that shows itself. And the self, the I, the me, the my, has a very strong vested interest. One of the areas which comes up regularly, and, and it's, maybe it's just Christopher's uh, memory or whatever, 
But lots of communication from people in their 20s, 30s and early 40s about having children, women and men. It's a constant dialogue that goes on. And so for some, the view is, I don't have. From the not having view, the imagination, the picture, the story and the idea all arises because there is a gap. The gap is, I don't have, I would like to have. And, and then in order for that to happen, certain actions have to be taken. I don't need to go into the detail. And sometimes that action is not happening, called going to bed with somebody else, or being in a relationship, or going to the fertility shop, or whatever. <laughs> it may be whatever the gap um, 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 might be. And the imagination tells the one who doesn't have, as this is one small example of many, that I would be so much better off if I had. And we build up parenting into a certain status based on the not having. And even though those of us who are parents can say to others till the cows come home, parenting is no holiday. <laughs> Don't imagine your life will be fulfilled by having screaming kids around you. <laughs> Don't think it for a moment. Don't think how happy you will be when you're getting up in the middle of the night three or four times. We have a view, and parents know and find out that the view that we have and the actuality of it is often completely different. And the imagination creates the view. And if we felt unfulfilled without children, children are going to fulfill one's life. We will still have that unfulfilled feeling going on for us in some other way. And then children, oh, if I didn't have kids, I could do so much more with my life. I could be a great bodhisattva and work, work selflessly for this whole species. I could probably get a Nobel Prize in a few years. But I've got these kids to take care of, etc. The movement from the not having into the having is not the resolution. There is much which is joyful about not having children. It's beautiful. And there is much which is joyful about having children. And there is much which a person may say is missing in my life when not having children. And there is much which a person will say, having children, there is much missing in my life. It's not the issue. And somehow or other, we tend to grasp the having and the not having. And with that, decisions choices, pressure, all of that accompanies with it. We're trying to find another way of being in this world which is wise, liberating, deeply loving 
and is not tied into a having and not having view. It's not tied into it. And life somehow, I don't want to sound too mystical, but somehow takes care of us. Sometimes even with the roles that we have, as I uh, mentioned there, life is so extraordinary that even what we take for granted, actually hold it up to the view and therefore and therefore the choices seems a little absurd. So for I mean, for example, we go back to this kind of role. We will say, we will think, we will imagine, the father comes before the child. You know, the father is the cause for the child, or the mother is the cause for the child, the father. But if there was a father or a mother and and the father and mother you know, comes before the child uh, there, then in that view, then we, we would, the person would always be a father, always be a mother. You'd say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a baby, I'm, I'm a, a father or whatever. And the, the idea is that the, the, the father comes before the child. The father is the cause for the child, etc. But if that was the case, the father would always be a father. father can't come, come before the child. And the child obviously can't come before the father because then there would be children and there would be no father and no mother. They would just come, etc. And if they came at the same time, then one, would, then one couldn't come before the other. And we live in a world of the roles and the identities that are going on uh, there. And we live in the ways that one always comes before the other. Or they come at the same time. That's anything. And you see that identity and, and roles which we have, sometimes they appear with us, but they appear with us because there are other roles which are different. I have a role in life. And the role, is, in the moment, is the role, the identity <coughs> of being the so-called teacher. In order for the role to appear, it requires support. Mostly, I talk, you listen. <laughs> Put it simply. Then the teacher can do his thing, and one listens. And if one of you decided in here right now to end the role, it's easy. You just get up and you start singing, get the music out, playing some music, get the iPod going, a few loudspeakers running around, start talking to the person sitting next to you, making love in the corner, and <laughs> my lovely little role for 45 minutes would be finished. Finished. Useless. So the role, the identity that emerges requires and depends upon the mutual support, affirmation, confirmation of others. So the idea of I am a uh, teacher and therefore the identity that goes with it only has any confirmation if someone is, says, Christopher, I'm willing to listen to you. And there can't be a teacher 
without the, in this case, without the listeners. And the listeners can end the role, as I say, at any time. So in the looking in identity and the role that emerges, we say, oh, I, I'm, I've chosen to be a Dharma teacher. This is my job. Really? Did I choose it? If I really chose to be a Dharma teacher, and that's what I have chosen, it would exclude all the considerations of others. I've chosen it. And because I've chosen it now, you have to listen. Because <laughs> this is my chosen career. <laughs> but if I say, look, and say, this role has emerged, it is dependently arising on the support of others, then the language of I chose this seems very, very relative because others have to give it confirmation. I can't choose the role independent of everybody else. There has to be an agreement about it. There has to be some support for it. It is dependently arising. Surely, if I'm a little aware of this, in whatever role I have in life, and you and I, we all have various roles, since the role is rather, and is intimately connected with others, whatever the role is, surely love is worthwhile. If one wishes the role to be affirmed, then love will affirm the role. Awareness will affirm it. Sensitivity will affirm it. Respect will affirm it. The appreciation of others will affirm it. So if there is a, a role that you and I wish to engage in in life, or are engaging in, it, for it to work well and beautifully, it will require from us that respect and sensitivity and love and connection for the other to allow the role to be. Otherwise we just become little fascists, little dictators, little controllers of others who may do the demands of our role because we're in charge. But it won't be with any love. It will be with resentment. It will be with negativity, it will be, it will be with blame, it will be with resistance. And eventually, the role, controlled and identified with and expecting others to fit into, will become a burden on the self. So just finally, from the level of awareness and sensitivity, to the exploration of looking into choice, to seeing the emptiness of choice may allow a much more free movement of life, which roles have a part uh, to play. And when we're caught in the construct of choice, can we look a little bit deeper? Can we look a little bit deeper, rather than going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, pushed and pulled about by our own tendencies? Meditation contributes to that looking deeper. Awareness contributes. Love contributes. May we see the emptiness of choice. Let's have a quiet minute together, shall we?